Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is professor of history at Christendom College. He received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University, and in recent years, he has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. Dr. McGuire is a popular speaker and has been featured in Christendom College's summer conferences. In the summer 2015, he spoke on historical scholarship in the thought of John Henry Newman. He's taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level and currently teaches courses on the ancient biblical world, early modern Europe, late and um, antique and medieval Europe, and Reconquista and Crusades. So Dr. Ben McGuire, the floor is all yours. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to, to be back with you. I've actually, uh, I've never really done this before. I, I, I used to video conference with, um, uh, with the nuns for the Magdala Apostolate, and uh, so I'm a little bit familiar with this interface. Um, but it's still uh, it's still uh, kind of a little bit unnerving. I, I see all of you, and I guess you all see me. Uh, so welcome, welcome. Um, so Father Hezekiah asked me um, to speak about Celtic peoples, and uh, particularly the, the history of, of pre-Christian Celtic peoples. And um, th this is a very, very interesting subject, because when we think about Celtic peoples, most of us think, of course, of Ireland. We think of maybe Scotland, Wales. Uh, if we're a little bit more educated, we might think of Brittany, Cornwall, and Galicia in Spain. And if you notice what all those places have in common, they're all on the fringes of Europe. When we think of surviving Celtic culture, like vibrant, still historically extant Celtic culture, we find Celtic culture on the fringes of Europe, uh, in the areas where Roman power was either weakest or non-existent. Uh, and, and that's kind of weird um, because archaeology tells us that the Celts originally came from Central Europe, uh, that the original homeland of identifiable Celtic people uh, with their Iron Age Celtic culture uh, was actually sent Central Europe. People speak of Hallstatt culture and uh, Latin culture being the two representatives of Central European Celts in antiquity. But the problem is, if, if we want to talk about that, then we're not really talking about history. We might as well talk about brachiosauruses. That's not doing history, because we don't really have sources. Uh, we have archaeology. And uh, archaeology can tell us some things. Archaeology can tell us about the prehistory of, of a people. We do know that there is an identifiable ethno-linguistic culture of the Celts. We know that they're an Iron Age culture. Uh, that in the middle of the first millennium BC, uh, they had established a kind of Celtic uh, empire that covered much of Europe. Uh, but ultimately, of course, the dominant culture in most of those places ended up being the culture of Rome, uh, which subsumed and obscured and ultimately uh, obliterated Celtic culture. 
So ultimately, the, the surviving representatives of the Celts end up being the people on the coastal fringes of Europe, either uh, continental Celtic culture, as we would find in, in the rugged, remote places like Brittany and Galicia in Spain, or what we call insular Celtic culture, which be, would be the Celtic culture of Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, and Ireland. I, I do have some maps that we can pull up. Uh, let's pull up the map of the Roman Empire uh, so we can take a look at that. This is a map of the Roman Empire around the time of, of the greatest extent of the Roman Empire there. You see, uh, so if you look at that one on the bottom left, uh, you see in the yellow area, the original homeland of Hallstatt and Latin culture, what archaeologists tell us is the original homeland of the ancient Celts. Uh, then kind of in, in the, the light green, you see the extent of Celtic culture at its ultimate greatest extent, maybe in the middle of the first millennium before Christ. But then you see, of course, in the much darker green, the areas of surviving Celtic language in modern times, the places where today in you know, 2018 you can go and find Celtic languages uh, still spoken among the people to some extent in Brittany, uh, actually to a surprising extent in Wales, and uh, to a, a, an unfortunately limited extent uh, in Ireland and in the Isles of, of Scotland. So if you switch back uh, away from that map, go back to the, our Roman imperial map there, the, the red one, you see the, the extent of, of course, Roman political power in the second century AD. And I want you to make a special note of where the cities are located. You'll notice that in, in certain places there are very few cities. Cornwall, for example, uh, which is that uh, the, the southwestern promontory that seems to stick off the island of Britain. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Brittany, which is the extreme northwestern corner of France. Uh, these areas were not uh, heavily urbanized or settled by Romans. And they were places where Celtic culture was able to survive the impact of Roman dominance. Also in, in the northwest of, of Spain there, in the extreme northwest of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, you see the misleading presence of a couple of cities there. Uh, in point of fact, that, that region is extremely rugged. And um, sim similarly, the ruggedness of the geography allowed Celtic culture to survive there long after it had been extinguished um, by the dominance of, of Roman and ultimately Germanic cultures uh, in Europe. So when we talk about Celtic culture, we're talking about something that, that's very, very ancient. Uh, it, it's older than the culture of Rome. Uh, it's arguably older than the culture of Greece. Uh, and the, the only places where it survived Roman power are on the fringes of Europe. And this is why people say that the traditions of the Irish people at being a branch of the Celtic family are the oldest of any people in Europe north and west of the Alps because they're, they're pre-Roman. But now, how can we know anything about pre-Christian Celts? Uh, this is, this is a sort of a, what we call a, a source problem as historians. It, we have to be very source critical when we're looking at the history of pre-Christian Celts um, because the only stories that we have about pre-Christian Celts are either these, these very distant observations that come from Romans and Greeks talking about continental Celts, uh, in which their information is very, very sketchy and, and fragmentary, uh, or the far more detailed and florid accounts of the Celts of Ireland but they don't come from contemporary sources, right? They, they come from Christian sources, right? Because it was Christianity that brought the art of writing to Ireland. Uh, so when we think about um, the culture of, of pre-Christian Ireland, 
we, we always have to keep in mind that we're looking at it through the lens of centuries of Christianity. Uh, even our oldest written sources that tell us the whole history of pre-Christian Ireland uh, were written by medieval Christian monks, uh, medieval Christian monks who were, in many cases, the recipients of a very old oral tradition. So we have to be a little bit source critical, but by the same token, I'm not one for discounting oral tradition, right? Oral tradition is one of the coolest things uh, in, in the world. If you think about it, archaeology over the centuries has always had a tendency to prove oral tradition correct. Oh, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Think about, think about Greece, right? In the 19th century, positivist historians were so confident that the Trojan War was fake, that the Trojan War never happened. Uh, they were confident that Troy never existed. They were confident that Minoan civilization on the island of Crete was a myth and that it never existed. Uh, and yet archaeology proved these hubristic scholars wrong. Uh, archaeology in every case vindicates the myths, right? The myths that the Greeks had preserved through centuries, including centuries in which they had lost the art of writing. Uh, the centuries between 1100 BC and 800 BC are what you call the Greek Dark Age. And somehow a knowledge of Bronze Age warfare, the story of the Trojan War, uh, the story of, of Minoan civilization had somehow been transmitted orally through all those centuries. And, and the myths were vindicated by the archaeology. Uh, in a sense, I, I would assume in Ireland that a similar situation would, would prevail, right? That ultimately the, the legends, uh, the orally transmitted legends about pre-Christian Ireland, uh, when they become incarnated in book form by medieval Christian monks, uh, ultimately that there's probably a very sizable kernel of historical truth there. Uh, so one of the most important medieval sources for pre-Christian Celtic history, as it was understood by medieval Christians, is something called the Book of Invasions. Uh, now, what the Book of Invasions tells us is that the, there were three sons of Milesius, who is called Mila Spagna in Irish. Uh, Milesius, who was a Celtic chieftain who came from Spain, and it was in the fourth century BC, according to the chronicles, around the time of Alexander the Great, uh, the three sons of Mila Spagna, Heramon, Heber, and Ur, came to Ireland and conquered the land, right? So what do we have? We have here a story of a, a fourth century BC Celtic invasion of Ireland. So what does that imply? It implies that the Celts were not the original indigenous habits, inhabitants of Ireland. And uh, of course they were not. Because the, uh, a genetic study of, of Irish people that was done in the early 2000s actually showed that the overwhelming contribution to the DNA of Irish people uh, actually comes from the very people who have inhabited Ireland since before Neolithic times, right? That the genetic stock of most Irish people, for the most part, is, is pre-Celtic and comes from the island's Stone Age inhabitants, which is no surprise. And yet it was the Celts who conquered the land who imposed uh, their culture, their law, their language, their legal traditions, right? But also blended it with much older, deep culture, which always happens in situations like this. Uh, so what the legend tells us is that the three sons of Milesius came from Spain, where we know that there was a stronghold of, of Celtic culture, and that they came from Spain and imposed their empire on the island of Ireland, and that when they came to conquer the land, they conquered it from these people who were called the Tuatha de Danann. Now, the de Danann, as they appear in the chronicles, are fantastical. They're semi-divine 
demigods, um, magical people who, who are, are, are conquered by these Iron Age Celts. Now this, in a sense, I think we find an analog in Greek myth. Because in, in Greek myth, right, remember, uh, Homer writes about the war of, of Troy, and he describes Bronze Age people as being semi-divine, uh, demigods. Achilles is, is a, a son of the gods. All these guys are, are descendants of the gods. It's very, very similar when you see um, Christian Irish myth uh, about the Bronze Age inhabitants of Ireland who are theoretically conquered by Iron Age Celts. Um, they're portrayed as sort of semi-divine and they fade into the background and, and they're still kind of always there. They're, they're always sort of in the background and they can creep out and work all sorts of mischief uh, when they want to. So if we're looking at this the way modern scholars would look at it, we would say, okay, the myth preserves a historical truth, uh, which is that Iron Age people, namely the Celts, who may or may not have come from Spain, but the myth says that they did, uh, they came to Ireland and conquered the Bronze Age ruling class and replaced it. So they replaced the Bronze Age ruling class and they rule over the sort of plebeian inhabitants of Ireland whom uh, the myth calls the Fearbolg. And so you'd say, okay, if, if you're a modern scholar, maybe the Fearbolg of the myth would correspond with, uh, with the descendants of the, the original Neolithic stock of inhabitants of Ireland. So there are a variety of ways in which modern scholars will, will look at the myths and, and kind of take them seriously. Um, it seems that, uh, to be a consensus of scholars of the Celts uh, that the, these insular conquests, Celtic conquests, in Brittany and Wales and Ireland are basically the last conquests of the Celts, and they become the last outposts of Celtic civilization as almost all of the European continent uh, is subsumed either by Roman or by Germanic power. So as an upper-class minority, the Celts come to Ireland and they impose their culture, their empire, their language, and to some extent their religion, although it seems like the Druidic religion of the Celts certainly blends with much older elements that are native to the insular culture of Ireland. You see, Ireland was already a land of, of very, very ancient cultures. Uh, sacred places of the dead, sacred groves, uh, hill fortresses, places like Tara, Eamon uh, Macha, Eilach, the, the Grania of Eilach. Uh, these are places of both sacral and political power which in many cases are actually older than the pyramids. They're certainly pre-Celtic. They may even be pre-Bronze Age in, in many cases. Uh, the sacred places of Ireland uh, shrouded and, and veiled in millennia of, of myth and sacrality. Uh, these places are very, very, very old. And um, they're basically adopted by the Celts as, as their own sacred places and, and places of, of political significance. Under the Celtic order in Ireland, we know that there was a, a ruling class, uh, a race of kings and warriors. We also know that there was a learned class. Now, it, it's interesting as, as we sort of opine about the learned class, um, because the, the learned class is really divided into two. You have the Druids and you have the Feely. The Druids are what modern people are really interested in. Have you ever noticed um, the sort of neo-pagan modern idiots love Druids, uh, and, and they love trying to resurrect the traditions of the Druids. Uh, but it's really stupid because 
historically speaking, the mem- the actual memory of the Druids and, and what they did and what their actual beliefs were and their practices was deliberately and successfully obliterated by Christianity. There's a kind of Domnatio Memoriae about the Druids. There's a reason why we don't know much about the Druids. What we do know, or what we can infer from certain early Christian sources, is that the Druids terrorized the population, and they especially terrorized the lower classes, that they selected victims for human sacrifice, that they were the masters of diabolic arts, of of magic and and terror, and that they were wielded um, by the kings as a a sort of instrument of of terror against the lower classes. But the Druids effectively are are completely eliminated and replaced by the monastic culture of Christian Ireland. So Druidic culture, it's actually not transmitted after Ireland is evangelized. And uh, the same is true in Britain, and the same is true elsewhere in Europe. There's very, very little that we can say at all uh, about Druids, except that they existed, and that early Christian missionaries prayed uh, to God for a defense against the spells of the Druids. About the Feely, we can say much, much more, because the Feely are the learned class uh, that actually survives the Christianization of Celtic lands, and, and particularly Celtic Ireland. So the Feely were the keepers of law, the keepers of memory, uh, the keepers of poetry, mythology, and pedigree. The Feely were uh, very, very important. They, they were the social, effectively the social equivalent of the kings. Everything was oral memory. They, they had fantastic memories. They would memorize the equivalent of, of whole libraries of law, pedigree, poetry, myth, uh, etc. And uh, so the Feely are very, very important in pre-Christian Ireland. And um, their survival after the Christianization of Ireland was a matter of some doubt, in fact, until, of course, St. Columkill weighed in on their behalf. So we'll talk about that when we get there. But for now, let's look a little bit at the what we know of the political history of uh, pre-Christian Celtic Ireland. We know that the, the last rebellion of pre-Celtic peoples, uh, basically the, the last sort of challenge to a Celtic regime in Ireland, was around AD 100. Cerbra uh, Kincat, the cathead, uh, he seems to have, have led a rebellion of pre-Celtic peoples around this time, which was crushed by a Celtic prince named Tuahal. And uh, this, is, this is sort of the last hurrah, maybe, of, I don't know, descendants of Bronze Age elites uh, or something. But it's completely crushed. And after, the, after AD 100, there are no more challenges to uh, the supremacy of Gaelic Celts in Ireland. We do know around uh, 100 years later, we see the island of Ireland divided between two great chieftains. So let's see if we can pull up the map of, of Ireland there. And we'll, we'll take a look at the, the geography of Ireland. So you see here um, the, a line that divides Connacht and the Southern O'Neill uh, from Munster and uh, South Leinster. Uh, you see a line that goes roughly across the middle of the island from the Atlantic Ocean uh, across to the Irish Sea. And uh, that's a line, even though this map sort of depicts the politics of the ninth century, if you're wondering what this map depicts, this, this is basically how Ireland was politically divided in the ninth century AD. Nevertheless, the survival of that line is very, very interesting because it is of pre-Christian origin. 
it's something that it's very, very old. Uh, it goes back to um, a, a very ancient fight between Khan of the 100 Battles and his opponent, Owen Moore. And the two of them fought, this is around 200 AD, and ended up sort of dividing the Ireland, the island of Ireland in, in half between them. And uh, this is where the, the, the names survive, Khan's half and Moe's half. So Khan's half survives as Connacht, Moe's half survives as, as Munster. Uh, and it's called Moe's half because Owen Moore was a, a devotee of a goddess named Moa. So you have Khan's half and, and Moe's half. Now Khan's half included the lands that are marked on your map as the Southern O'Neill. Uh, so Khan's half included what we would call Mead. And it was the race of Khan, the Dal Queen, that would give Ireland its centralized monarchy uh, from pre-Christian times all the way down to the 11th and into the 12th century, right? The race of Khan would be uh, the family, the clan group that would provide Ireland with its central monarchy and its high kingship. So it would be Khan's grandson who is the next great representative of this family. Khan's grandson was named Cormac McArt, and uh, he reigns from around 275 AD to around 300. And uh, Cormac McArt is seen as the, the great legislator, uh, founder of the high kingship, uh, a true nation maker, I would argue. Cormac McArt is, is known in legend as uh, the builder of the, the five roads that emanate from the hill of Tara in central Meath, the, the five roads that unite the island of Ireland as um, it, it would be a bit of an exaggeration to call it a politically unified entity, but certainly a culturally and linguistically unified entity under the theoretical overlordship of the high king who is first among equals. And uh, the status of the high king from the time of Cormac MacArthur all the way down to the early modern period, from the time of Cormac MacArthur, uh, really all the way down to Tudor dominance in Ireland, uh, the supremacy of the High King was celebrated by the Fesh of Tara. The Fesh of Tara was celebrated every three years at the Sacred Hill of Tara. And it was um, an opportunity for poetry, games, poetry contests, uh, homaging, all of these things that affirmed the, the role of the High King and the position of the High King as the, the sort of symbolic uniter of the island of, of Ireland. One of Cormac MacArthur's most important descendants as we go through the history of pre-Christian Ireland would have been Nile of the Nine Hostages. Uh, Nile of the Nine Hostages was High King from around 380 to around 405. And uh, Niall is sort of famous not only for his raids and his, his opportunism, as Roman power was crumbling in the West and Roman power crumbling particularly in Britain, uh, Niall took great advantage of this to launch raids against the continent and raids against Britain. But Niall of the Nine Hostages is, is also famous as a prolific begetter of offspring. And uh, so one of his sons was the famous Leary, who was the high king at the time of St. Patrick's mission to Ireland. Two of his other sons were named Owen and Connell. So let's go back to the map of Ireland, and we can see how the, the race of Khan in the early Middle Ages here in pre-Christian times extends itself uh, across Ireland. So you see there where it says the, the northern O'Neill. Those O'Neill up there in the north, they were named after... Nile of the Nine Hostages, because it was Nile of the Nine Hostages, a descendant of the race of Khan, who sent his two sons, Owen and Connell, 
up to the north. And uh, the sons of Nile of the Nine Hostages, Owen and Connell, conquered the north, and they divided it between them. And this is where we get the names uh, of Tyr Connell and Tyr Owen. Tyr Connell being what roughly corresponds to modern-day County Donegal, and Tyrone roughly corresponding to modern-day County Tyrone. You see there, there's the Southern O'Neill, that would have been the domain of Leary, the High King. So the family of Khan uh, is basically extending its supremacy over huge swaths of Ireland uh, in the early Middle Ages in pre-Christian times. Uh, eventually, uh, in the 5th century, Fergus Mac Irk, uh, another descendant of this dynasty, he would extend Irish rule even further uh, with his invasion of Scotland uh, in the 5th century, which is what creates sort of the long history of Gaelic Scotland with the importation of Irish culture and practices. Of course, the great event uh, that really demarcates the history of Ireland is Patrick's mission. Patrick's lifespan was from 390 to 461. And uh, he was from Roman Britain. He, he, he was born in a place called Bonavim Tabernii in Britain. And uh, he was the son of a Christian deacon, a Christian uh, Roman in every way. Patrick always identifies himself as a Roman in his confessions, which are written in Latin. Uh, he calls himself a Roman, right? Romanus. That's, that's how he identifies himself. Patrick's mission to Ireland was, was really unique in the annals of Christian history. It's, it sets the stage for Ireland to become a, a, a unique flowering of Christian culture. Patrick was, um, of course, as you know, captured as a, as a young boy and held as a slave in Ireland. This was during one of the raids of Nile of the Nine Hostages. He used to send ships up the Severn and the Solway in, in Roman Britain to get captives. And uh, so Patrick, as a young boy, a young aristocrat, a young Roman aristocrat, is actually captured in one of these raids and brought to Ireland, where he has to work as a slave and a shepherd, and is there for years. And he learns the language of the Irish, he learns the culture of the Irish, he learns their customs, their lore, and their myth. Of course, we know that he escapes as a young man, and when he escapes, he has one thing in mind, which is one day to return to Ireland and found the church there, uh, which he would eventually do in 432. Now, it's interesting, Patrick's education, in between his release from captivity or escape from captivity and his return to Ireland, his education uh, was that of a Roman churchman. He went to Gaul, to Auxerre, to be educated. So his, his education takes place in the church in Gaul at a time when Roman power is really collapsing in Gaul, when, when Roman power is collapsing and the church in Gaul remains the only institution that guarantees civilization, order, and education. Right, of course, we know Roman power is, is in the process of being replaced in the 5th century uh, by Merovingian and, and Frankish power there. But Patrick is still a recipient of Roman culture, undiluted Roman culture, and undiluted Roman education, which he brings with him when he goes back to Ireland in 432. Now, the brilliance of his mission is that he's able to wed his sort of Roman erudition with an intimate knowledge of uh, the local culture, myth, lore, language, politics, etc. And he's actually able to sort of out-Druid the Druids, if you will. Uh, he's able to, to humiliate the Druids, to defeat them spiritually in spiritual contests in a way that the common people find liberating and the ruling classes find very, very challenging. But in a sense, we can tell they're, they're, they're scared of Patrick, 
right? It's interesting, the foundation of the church in Ireland, it's one of the only examples in the whole history of evangelization in which a new church is founded not in the blood of martyrs. What we don't see is persecutions of Christianity or massive martyrdoms. What we have is mass conversions among the lower classes who find themselves freed from the terror of the Druids and liberated from that by Patrick's message. The one thing that Patrick's mission kind of fails in, I think is it's interesting to think about. Patrick is coming from Gaul and he's been formed you know, as a seminarian and a young priest and a bishop. He's been formed in the church in Gaul. And the kind of standard version of church organization that Patrick has in mind is an Episcopal structure, a church that's based around dioceses, uh, where you have bishops in cities. Now, this isn't going to work in Ireland because you don't have cities. So a, a, a structure of the church that's based around bishops, it's actually not really going to be how the Irish church develops. Uh, in fact, the Irish church really develops around monasteries. And this, this is something that's more suited to the conditions, but the political and social conditions of Ireland. Um, so we, we see that the real organization of the Irish church actually starts to, to take shape in the century after Patrick, uh, in the sixth century. Uh, St. Finian founded the Abbey of Clonard in 540. The sixth century is the time when all these other great abbeys were founded, Clonmacnoy, uh, Clonfort, uh, Lismore, Derry, Kildare. Uh, the 6th century is, is when the Irish church really blossoms and flowers and comes into its own. And uh, one of the greatest representatives of the 6th century flowering is St. Columkill himself. Uh, St. Columkill, also known as St. Columba, he was born in 521. And the interesting thing about him is that he's born as a scion of the royal family. Uh, he's of the most elite blood, a descendant of the high kings, a member of the uppermost echelons of the Gaelic aristocracy in Ireland. He was also, interestingly enough, educated by a Christian feely. So he was educated in, in all the lore, poetry, and oral traditions and myth of the Gaelic Celts. So he had kind of both sources of formation. Formation um, as a Christian in Latin letters and Latin literacy, uh, which was accompanied by formation in Gaelic oral learning. And, and he was a paragon of both of these types of learning. Uh, he was a real polymath. And yet he had a monastic vocation, clearly from a very early age. Uh, when he was only in his mid-20s, in 546, St. Columkill founded the abbey at Derry. Uh, so Derry in the north of Ireland, uh, the Irish for Derry, it means an, an oak grove. And it was originally called Derry Columkill, uh, the oak grove of, of Columkill. And it was originally a monastery, right? But you see the monasteries, these places like Derry, Clonmacnoy, Clonfort, uh, they really became a substitute for urban centers in Ireland. They became the places uh, where you went for education. They became marketplaces. They became places where, where people went and met each other and talked. Uh, they became the bastions of Christianity in Ireland. Uh, so ultimately, in the 6th century, it becomes pretty clear that abbots in Ireland, in a very unique way, abbots, as it were, uh, sort of outrank bishops uh, in a way that's unique in the annals of, of Christianity. What's interesting about Columkill, though, is that, of course, he, he gets in trouble uh, after the foundation of Derry. His aristocratic temper sort of gets him in trouble. In the 560, around 560, he visited another abbey at Moville, and uh, he stayed with St. Finnan there, the, the abbot of Moville. 
And, uh, you know, back then books are very, very expensive and they were printed by hand. And, uh, of course, Irish calligraphy is, is a great art. And uh, Colin Kill basically decided he was going to stay up all night and copy out the entire Vulgate so that he would have another copy of the Vulgate. And uh, so he, sa he stays up all night and does this. And uh, in the morning, you know, he's, he's all red-eyed and he's propping his eyelids open with toothpicks. And uh, Finnan comes down. He's like, hey, man, you've been up all night. And Colin feels like, oh, heck yeah, I've been up all night. I've been copying the whole Vulgate. And, uh, you know, and, and Finnan says, you can't do that. That's my Vulgate. You can't copy it. It's, it's mine. If you copy it, then I own the copy. And Colin Kill says, nope. And the dispute just spirals out of control. It ends up being appealed to the High King. Now, weirdly enough, uh, the High King at this time was still a pagan. He was one of the last pagan aristocrats in Ireland. And he gives a, a very interesting ruling. He says, to every cow, her calf, and to every book, its copy. Uh, so Colin Kill is deprived of his book. And he's so indignant that he rallies the descendants of Khan, the race of the O'Neill. He rallies these men of his royal blood to his side, and it leads to a huge battle in 561, the Battle of Kuldremna. And uh, there's thousands of men slaughtered in this battle. And afterwards, Columkill was, was stricken in his heart with repentance. And, and he took a vow that he would never see his native land again until he had won for Christ as many souls as had perished at Kuldremna. So after 561, Columkill leaves Ireland and he goes to Scotland, where he founded the monastery at Iona. Uh, so the, the island monastery of Iona in Scotland becomes a, a great center of, of Gaelic Christian outreach to the Scots and eventually to Northumbria as well. Uh, it, it becomes a great center, not only of monastic sanctity and evangelization, but also of learning and also of spreading Gaelic and Irish culture across Britain at a time when Roman power in Britain had completely collapsed. Now, it, it's interesting to note, the church in Britain actually had the potential to really be an Irish church. Uh, so the death of Columkill is 597. And uh, that's exactly the same year that St. Augustine of Canterbury arrived at Kent. Uh, St. Gregory the Great, who was the Pope at the time, uh, 590 to 602, Gregory the Great had realized that Britain, since the collapse of Roman political power in Britain, Britain had basically become a pagan island in a lot of ways. Uh, other tribes had moved in. Um, the, the Christianized uh, sort of Romano-Celtic Britons uh, had been driven into the hills. Uh, everything had gone to rack and ruin. And uh, Pope Gregory the Great wanted to send missionaries there. Of course, communication was so tough over great distances. Uh, he really had no idea that there were already Irish missionaries in Britain. Uh, so he sends Augustine, St. Augustine of Canterbury, uh, to Kent in 597. And this brings Roman Christianity from a fresh source, undiluted Roman Christianity, back to Britain. Now, we have to be really, really careful when discussing the conflict that's going to ensue here, because a lot of modern polemicists want to argue that Celtic Christianity was never Roman. And this is absolute nonsense. Uh, from the very time of Patrick, Patrick in, had always argued, insofar as you are children of Christ, you must be children of Rome. The Irish church always thought of itself as attached to the See of Rome. And this is actually evident in the dispute that emerges in Britain. Because, of course, what had happened was, in the centuries with the collapse of Roman political power and 
the Frankish conquest of Gaul and the Saxon conquest of England, communication between these insular locations and the papacy had been difficult for some time. As a result, the Irish church had never gotten the memo about changes that had been introduced, changes to the dating of Easter and changes to um, little things like monastic tonsure and the things that sort of sound funny to us, but were topics of great uh, distress at the time. So in 633, there were two Northumbrian kings who had been educated in Iona. They had lived in exile at Iona, and they came out of exile in 633, came to Northumbria, and brought with them Gaelic Celtic Christianity with the older dating of Easter and the older practice of the monastic tonsure. And this led to conflict because missionaries from Rome were coming and saying, no, you guys are dating Easter all wrong and you're doing your tonsure all wrong. So this conflict culminates in the famous Synod of Whitby in 664, which is held in Northumbria. And at the Synod of Whitby, it's interesting to note how it goes down because papal authority is paramount, right? Papal authority wins the argument. The Irish church eventually completely gave in on these issues of the dating of Easter and the monastic tantra. They completely conformed to Roman practice. So the whole notion that there is some kind of Celtic Christianity that's distinct from Roman Christianity and, and is not Roman Catholicism or something like that, that's nonsense, right? We, we are talking about Roman Catholicism when we're talking about Gaelic Christianity. Uh, and we see this at the Synod of Whitby where Roman missionaries are able to come and, you know, Northumbrian Christians who are influenced by Roman missionaries are able to win the argument by citing papal authority. And the Celtic or Gaelic response to papal authority is not, oh, well, we're not Roman Catholic, we're Celtic Christians. No, nobody says that, right? Papal authority wins the argument hands down at the Synod of Whitby in 664. So the Irish church continues to prosper in the 7th century. Um, by around the year 800, we, we reach a, a sort of a golden age of Irish Christianity, where Ireland is, it would be a stretch to say Ireland is united politically, right? Ireland is united under a, a high king who's the sort of symbolic first among equals. But the culture is thoroughly Christianized. Irish monasteries are bastions of, of learning and letters. And Ireland has begun to send missionaries to the continent to actually bring back not just the light of Christianity, but the light of Roman learning and Roman culture to parts of Europe where it had been lost for centuries. And it's interesting how the Irish church, even back then, finds its vocation in the diaspora, right, with Irish monks like St. Columbanus and his disciple St. Gallen, St. Gaul, founding monasteries, founding centers of, of Gaelic and Roman culture in Europe, in places where Roman culture had completely collapsed. Now, the thing that would ultimately uh, sort of isolate Ireland from the continent would be the Scandinavian invasions. Uh, the great Viking invasions of the 9th and 10th century uh, had a profound isolating effect on Ireland. They disrupted Ireland's cultural golden age. They disrupted Ireland's relationship with the continent. Uh, they weakened Irish political institutions, and they weakened the Irish church. The Viking invasions of the 9th century and the 10th century had such a profound impact on, on Ireland that in a very real way, they, they sort of set the stage for the, the later Norman invasion 
of Ireland and the, the ultimate succumbing of Ireland to Norman political power. And of course, eventually, when we're talking about Normans, of course, we're talking about the English ruling class. Uh, so ultimately, English political power. But Ireland is, is truly unique among the nations of the earth in this respect, that alone of all the nations of Northern Europe, Ireland resisted a top-down Protestant Reformation. Alone of all the nations of Northern Europe, Ireland resisted this and, and retained its Catholic faith. This has profound impacts on the culture of Ireland in modern times. You see, by the 19th century, it was illegal for a Catholic in Ireland to live within a few statute miles of an incorporated town. It was illegal for a Catholic to enter a profession. It was illegal for a Catholic to vote. Uh, it was illegal for a Catholic to receive an education. Ireland had been reduced by English supremacy to a, a people truly, truly subjugated and, and forced into a state of poverty and near starvation. Uh, even before the famine proper, British government reports in Ireland um, in the 1820s and 30s indicated a, a population that, that was hovering near starvation. And this is the fruit of centuries of religious persecution. And yet Ireland uh, alone, through those centuries of religious persecution, maintained its Catholic faith and, and passed it on to subsequent generations who found their vocation in the diaspora. And, and frankly, the only thing that proved capable of undermining the Catholic faith in Ireland was prosperity. And uh, that's led us to the, the cultural impasse that we see today in Ireland, in which at least three generations have forgotten their faith. But as always, I, I think Ireland f has found its vocation in, in the missionary diaspora. And now, paradoxically, it, it's Irish people from the diaspora who are returning to Ireland uh, to try to bring the faith back to life. So there we are. I will stop there uh, since I'm out of time and we will have 15 minutes of Q&A. Look at that. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. McGuire. There's already a whole bunch of good questions coming in. Okay, yes. Francis, is that how you say it? Uh, Fran, a comment. Uh, yes, my um, maternal grandparents came from Galway Bay, but this was a lot of interesting, you know, addition. But the last time I was in Ireland was two uh, 2000. And yes, the country is no longer Catholic. The Celtic tiger really did them in. But as another comment as a forward, if people travel, I did uh, ca uh, England, Catholicism in England a couple of years ago. And it is very informative. And we had crowds following us because they wanted to know the history of the Catholic Church, which was very golden. In, in, in England. Awesome. Just a comment. Okay. <laughs> welcome back, uh, Dr. McGuire. Thank you. Uh, we've got a question being written here from Eric Allen. Eric writes, could you comment a bit more on the obliteration of Judaism by Christianity? How does the ancient practice of eliminating pagan practices align with the modern approach of, quote, dialogue, end quote? Is the difference explainable by the loss of the church's cultural and political leverage in Western societies? Yeah, um, that's, that's a very, very good question. So it, it, it is interesting. When we talk about the obliteration of pre-Christian religion in Ireland, we actually have to be very careful because Patrick was a brilliant St. Pat, not just Patrick, but the monastic founders uh, as well. They were brilliant assimilators 
of whatever they could salvage from the older culture. Um, so there's even the, the uh, many of the statues of the old gods can still be found, uh, but they become the demons in Christian iconography. So you can find uh, even in, in certain very old standing stones that were originally carved as images of pre-Christian gods, they've been repositioned as demons being crushed by the cross or being crushed by an angel or by Our Lady. But in another sense, there really was a kind of baptism of pre-Christian practices. For example, holy wells, uh, a holy well as a sacred site. It's a big part of Irish Christianity uh, that the wells are holy, that the water from a holy well is holy. But those are pre-Christian sites. Uh, and the practice of sort of communing with the divine at a holy well is, is a pre-Christian Celtic practice. And, and what Patrick and the monastic founders apparently did was they, they baptized this practice by sort of exorcising the holy well, transforming it into a, a Christian holy well. And um, it's, it's interesting. The holy wells are all over Ireland um, to this day. I've been to many of them. And um, there's always religious sort of votive offerings. There are candles, rosaries, things like that. Um, there's also a custom of, of circumambulating a holy well, which is a pre-Christian practice. It's a pre-Christian custom uh, that was, was baptized by Patrick and the early monastic fathers uh, in Ireland. Also sacred cairns, uh, piles of, of stones at religious pilgrimage sites. There's a practice of, of circumambulating the cairns while praying, uh, which was a, a baptism of a, a pre-Christian practice by the, the early monastic fathers and possibly by Patrick himself. So there are a lot of pre-Christian practices and even sort of aspects of a pre-Christian worldview that the evangelizers of Ireland, Patrick and his monastic sort of children, they didn't see fit to just eliminate and obliterate everything from the culture. Um, actually, in, in very careful and interesting ways, Christianity was enculturated in Ireland, not with the sort of bl blind, oh, yeah, we're just in dialogue with you and, and you can worship your ancestors and blah, blah, blah. It was actually done in a very doctrinaire way, in a very careful way, but they nevertheless found ways to baptize uh, these practices that acknowledge the sacred uh, and to even to turn pre-Christian sacred sites into Christian sacred sites. Um, got a question coming in from Karen who writes, are any of our religious celebrations based on actual Celtic practices, or is that a myth? Yeah, well, I think it's at the very least, it's something that's exaggerated uh, to, it's exaggerated by modern-day neo-pagans. Modern-day neo-paganism is one of the most inauthentic things out there. You know, you look at modern-day neo-pagans celebrating Yule and celebrating the whatever, these nonsense things that they make up. These do not represent the authentic survivals of pre-Christian things. Uh, they represent, uh, you know, any more than the Hinduism of the Beatles represents actual Hinduism, right? Uh, these represent sort of postmodern people's fascination with other ways of approaching the sacred because Christianity is, is anathema to them. So the idea of Christian religious celebrations somehow being, quote-unquote, based on pagan religious celebrations. It's something that that's exaggerated by people who are fascinated with modern day neo-paganism. And, and I, I have no truck with that. Uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, I, I would say that late antique Christian missionaries were certainly creative when it came to baptizing the, the, the superficial and the ephemeral aspects of pre-Christian religion. Uh, so I, I gave you the examples of holy wells in Ireland and circumambulation 
you know, you, you see the, the same thing in Germany, right? St. Boniface goes to Germany and he chops down the sacred tree and all of that. And yet we also get Christmas trees from, from Germany. So, uh, the, you know, the, there is an extent to which Christianity was, had a, a unique capacity to assimilate pre-Christian cultures and things like that, but always in a very careful way, scrubbing them, exercising them, cleansing them, baptizing them, and putting them in the service of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, Jeff writes in and he asks, what are the earliest examples of a Celtic writing system in Gaelic? Oh, good question. So we, we have these these Ogam inscriptions, uh, which are pre-Christian, but they don't write very much. The, the Ogam inscriptions, you get um, funerary inscriptions, uh, little things on standing stones, some place names, and, and that's about it. You don't really get writing in at least in Ireland, you don't really get writing until Christianity comes, and then the, the Roman uh, the Roman alphabet is placed in the service of the Gaelic language, um, and that's that's when you get everything written down, right? Um, all of these the the great epics like the Cattle Raid of Cooley, um, and all you know the, the legends of the Fianna, the legends of of Finn McCool, all of these things um, were, were very very old and were transmitted through oral tradition, um, but they exist only in 12th century recensions today. So we only really have them in 12th century copies. Okay. I'm going to combine two questions here, one from Ellie and one from Maureen. They're both on the Celtic cross. So if I'm combining it, it would read something like this. Is there any version of the Celtic cross that has uh, the corpus on it? If not, uh, why? And then is the Celtic cross based on a pre-Christian symbol? Uh, good question. So um, Celtic cross, there are definitely versions that have the corpus on them. Uh, in fact, many of the medieval Celtic crosses or late antique Celtic crosses that still stand, they're covered in figures and, and they often, very often have the corpus in the center, but also a lot of other figures that they'll have the centurion, they'll have Mary and John. Uh, they'll have angels and demons and saints and um, the, the other scenes from salvation history and from Revelation. Um, so Celtic crosses are actually very rich in figures. I think what we have to remember is that the Celtic cross to us is this stone-looking thing. But in medieval times, they would have been covered in paint. Uh, they would have been covered in, in, in color. Uh, they wouldn't have been the, these sort of sterile blocks of, of stone. They would have been very, very colorful things. Uh, there are some Celtic crosses where, where some evidence of the polychromy sort of survives. Now, is it based on a pre-Christian thing? Well, I, I would say careful, uh, you know, yes and no. Obviously, the cross is not a pre-Christian symbol, and obviously it is the cross. But it's car it tends to be carved in stone and, and to stand as a, it looks like a standing stone. Now, the standing stones um, were sacred things uh, in not just in Ireland, but in Britain and in Celtic lands, actually even going back to pre-Celtic times. Um, and this is partly due to geographical determinism that the, these lands were places where they are very rocky and there are a lot of big stones. So you can use the stones to make impressive looking things. But actually, if you look at not just pre-Christian, but pre-Celtic things, things in Ireland that are older than the pyramids, uh, like Newgrange, uh, that are built out of stone, they would always be surrounded by standing stones. Uh, so I, I would argue that standing stones uh, in Ireland go back to Neolithic times. Uh, and then they're certainly appropriated by Bronze Age and Iron Age civilizations uh, in Ireland. And then by Christianity. But what does a Christian do? You take the standing stone and you make it a cross. 
right? So it, it, it's not just a standing stone. It's not a pagan symbol anymore. You take it and you turn it into a cross, and then it's a Christian symbol. Peter writes in, and uh, I know you had mentioned the Vulgate. He's mm-hmm. asking, did the early missionaries use the Vetus Latina or Jerome's Vulgate, or maybe both? Uh, really good question. Uh, I think definitely the Vulgate. Okay. Um, Tiarna writes in, and uh, essentially I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, Tiarna, is asking, do you, do you have any book recommendations on the subject of tonight that you just know off the top of your head that we could pursue? Oh, great. Yeah. So um, off the top of my head, um, it, it, a really fun read. Uh, it, it's very dated and it's very nationalistic, and I, I'm not endorsing everything it says by any means, but it's just fun is uh, Seamus McManus's story of the Irish race. It's very nationalistic and it's very sort of early 20th century and you'll pick up that vibe when you read it. But it's, it's just a lot of fun uh, for, and it's, it's a, a breezy sort of popular, easy read, well-written, very eloquent and, and full of, you know, f- full of many points of view on things. I'm, I'm not endorsing everything in it, obviously, but just a fun read for a sort of sober Anglo-Irish take on the history of Ireland. Edmund Curtis has aged pretty well as um, a a dispassionate uh, history of Ireland, also written in the early 20th century, sort of written at the very dawn of Irish independence. By a, I, I would think of Edmund Curtis as a member of the, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, basically. But uh, that, that would be another good read. Okay, excellent. We'll end with one more question here. Okay, uh, Sarah was writing, what was a religious order that introduced the monasteries in Ireland? Oh, good question. Good question. So um, you actually don't get continental religious orders until relatively late uh, in Ireland. The, the native monastic practice, uh, they weren't really organized as orders. They were organized as um, independent sort of autonomous monasteries with their own unique uh, ascetic culture. Uh, a good source to read on this is, um, you, you can find uh, actually the rule of St. Columba online. Uh, and it, it's a very short, very simple rule. It's not at all like the rule of St. Benedict. It doesn't go into detail. It doesn't make any provisions for coddling the flesh uh, in any way. Uh, it, it's basically a, a radical pedal to the metal approach to asceticism, to mortify the flesh in as radical of a way as, as you possibly can. And uh, this, this type of asceticism really characterizes uh, Irish monasticism. Now, in a sense, um, Irish-style monasticism ultimately loses out on the continent um, because of the way in which the Carolingians ensure that the dominance of Benedictine monasticism. And uh, of course, you know, Benedictine monasticism uh, has a lot to recommend it. But then um, in, in Ireland, really the, the Norman invasion sort of brings continental religious orders. You get the Franciscans, Dominicans, the Mendicants, you know, coming on board, uh, Benedictines, all the, the sort of continental religious order type traditions come to Ireland later in the Middle Ages. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. McGuire. We very much appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.